Blog Talk Radio. Finally, a global program specifically for wealthy, philanthropic women who are humble, gracious leaders. Sylvia Global's host, Gail Sylvia, invites you to join her in these conversations with First Ladies of Nations, Households, Business, and Communities. Trustworthy, live conversations with women from around the globe provides a place for your voice to connect with women of integrity, passion, and purpose. Now, here's your host, Gail Sylvia. Good evening. Thank you so much for being here with us today. I have the great distinction of being able to join Dr. Jamie from our Wealth Psychology um, segment, Uh, but this time to continue a conversation with her about walking her talk and following her passions. This is actually um, the Wealth Psychology Hour from 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock on Tuesdays, and you can call at... Area code 347-215-6138, and that's specific standard time, California. Again, 347-215-6138. Hi, Jamie. How are you? I'm great, Gail Flavia. It's so nice to be able to do the call with you, particularly yes. while uh, Emily is out. She's working with a family face-to-face, so uh, I couldn't think of a, a of another a great host that I'd rather be with than with you. So, well, you know, we, we should you. have. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, I think we made an error here. We should have used the intro for your, your show. <laughs> so, I'm so used to clicking that um, intro for when I'm on the air. But this is actually the Wealth Psychology Hour. And again, on Tuesday mornings, um, this is Tuesday morning in terms of Pacific Standard Time, 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock. What time is it there, Jamie, in Israel? It is 5 p.m., so it was perfect when you said good evening. I thought you were speaking right to me. And you know what's amazing, Gail Sylvia? Last week on um, the call with Emily, we had listeners from all over the world. So, um, you know, we're going to have to start saying when we introduce our calls, good evening, good morning, whatever it is, we hope you're having a good one because... (laughs) This is quite an international program, and we're simply delighted by that. We're very excited. The um, number of listeners to the Wealth Psychology segment is is um, growing exponentially. And I think it's because you, and I'm certain it's because um, you and Emily are addressing a need that is not being um, given any sufficient attention, I should say, in other me- broadcast mediums. And that's why we're so thrilled that Sylvia Global is a platform for wealth psychology discussions. Uh, some of the to- Why don't you share with the listeners some of the topics that you've covered so far? I would love to. And I'd also like to say, you know, you said it's not being covered in other um, social media or a- any media outlets. And, in fact, it's actually the opposite. It is sometimes being touched upon, but in a very negative way. You're correct. Where it's poking fun at um, people of wealth. It's demeaning. It's, um, you know, all the stereotypes. So this is an incredible opportunity. As you know, Gail Sylvian, as our listeners know, we're coming from a very positive um, perspective and really using positive psychology. So it isn't about what's wrong with people, but what's right with people, and how to use 
any strengths and talents, money and wealth being one of the tools to fulfill on your dreams. So you know, in the, that vein, go ahead. Yeah, that, no, that's absolutely correct. It, um, it is a topic that is being addressed or touched upon, as you said, but it's from this um, negative place. It's very... Um, it's not a, a holistic um, perspective. And one of the mediums or the reasons for the medium of Sylvia Global is to perpetuate the good, you know, that is within us and the good that is around us. And um, being able to embrace and recognize that. And you and Emily are just really bringing this wealth piece and those psychology of wealth um, to the forefront yeah, so we're really glad that you're here. Continue with some of the other discussions that you've had during your broadcast. Yes, with, you know, our listeners are really resonating with the programming. So we've talked about um, raising empowered versus entitled children, and that was a great discussion of how to open up conversations about money, how to help kids learn and be educated about money, how to let them make mistakes around money. Um, we did a show about when the woman earns more and how that impacts relationships. Um, last week's program was about women inheritors, which was very, very well received and I think also speaks to how much of a taboo and almost a closeted feeling people have about the experience of wealth in general and of being an inheritor in particular. It was amazing, Gail Sylvia, because we had more people contact us with questions, and yet no one called us. Everybody emailed. So I think one of the things that we've been hearing as feedback from our listeners is that they love the anonymity of being able to come and share their thoughts without um, being known. And when we talked about inheritors, even calling and having your voice on the air felt a little too um, revealing, and people chose instead to email. And, you know, it's great. However people want, you can fax, you can email, you can call. Um, but I think that was um, a great demonstration of just how um, much shame is often associated for people around being inheritors. And, it, you know, it's nothing somebody particularly chooses. It it happens to you. So um, it really let Emily and I know that we're on the right track in terms of bringing content that people are engaged and interested in and that they aren't having an opportunity um, to discuss in other forums. Uh, do you think that some of the experiences are, are, let me put it this way, that the experiences associated with wealth are also, in terms of monetary wealth, are symptomatic of experiences that people have with um, wealth in other areas of our lives? You know, wealth, whether we've you know, wealth isn't just limited to the dollars in the bank, although the wealth psychology, um, you know, segments are definitely um, geared toward that, um, you know, that situation. But do you think that wealth in terms of healthy relationships, um, a joy for living, a passion for, you know, with that's combined with a purpose, that sometimes some of the same types of guilt 
could be present? Did that make sense or was it too long? <laughs> no, I, I think I'm it makes perfect this. sense. It's, it's such an interesting juxtaposition of a question that we usually discuss, which is that people have too narrow of a definition of wealth and leading a rich life, that they think it's about what's, you know, your net worth in terms of um, what does your bank account say or what, you know, what are you worth financially? And we always work with people to broaden that definition. And it seems to me that you're actually asking kind of the opposite question of is there a sense of, if I'm understanding you correctly, is there a sense of shame and guilt or maybe even not deserving in other aspects of our life as well as when we have a wealth of money? It's a really interesting question. Um, I actually – Go ahead. I'm sorry. I actually – I think – really, I'm not sure it goes the opposite way. I think there are people, you know, if you have a wonderful, um, healthy family and, you know, everybody else in your larger family is dealing with illness, there might be a sense of shame and um, a little maybe guilt that why do you have health or why, you know, if you have wonderful relationships but – people around you are getting divorced. Um, and at the same time, though, I think that most people are able to take in um, abundance in other areas of their life. But when it comes to money, we want that abundance. And yet there's this, in our culture, I believe that there's this um, love-hate relationship. People yearn for wealth, but then there's also this prejudice and desire to sort of hate the wealthy. So, um, you know, maybe it happens, I don't know, maybe it happens also with people who are, you know, physically beautiful, but they feel like, you know, they can feel guilty about it. It's a very interesting question. I, I would love to hear what listeners might have to think on that subject, and I would love to hear your opinion. Let's have the listeners call in at 347-215-6138. They can also email us their questions at listeners at Sylvia Global, that's Sylvia with a Y, sylviaglobal.com. You know, I the intro to the show says finally a, a show for wealthy, philanthropic, gracious women who are leaders. And I get mixed reviews on using that word wealthy. Some people mm -hmm. feel alienated by it and others welcome it. You know, and so I can't help but wonder, because we haven't changed it yet. We're still weighing in on it. And this discussion that you and I are having right now is a part of, you know, that decision-making process, because what's wrong with aspiring, There's, you know, our society says there's nothing wrong with aspiring to wealth, mm -hmm. but then at the same time, doesn't the contentment come from within whether you have it or not. And then our society mm -hmm. also says, and I think we see it reflected um, in many ways, the way that you opened up the show, you know, talking about, you know, the, how wealthy, rich people are um, often presented in the media. We see it in the, you know, the presidential campaign as well, mm -hmm. that our society also only wants a person to attain 
a certain level of wealth, you know, and monetary wealth. And then where do you where's that line that you go from being considered, you know, admirably successful to being a bad person, you know, you know being being vilified. You know, it's and I think that this word wealth and the psychology of wealth runs a lot deeper than we, you know, often than we than we give much attention to. And I think that it stems back to at some point, whether it's internally or within our society, it really. I'm wondering if we have to come to a place of a discussion around contentment. You know, and if someone is is content, whether they have much or they have little, isn't that a part of the definition of wealth? Or in terms of monetary sense, if someone is content with their, is able to find a place, and that's what you and um, Emily help people do, is find this place of acceptance, that if they have abundant monetary wealth, they still have to learn to accept who they are and be content within that circumstance. Um, I don't know, maybe I'm making it too complicated, but these are the things that cross my mind when we, you know, wanted to bring on this segment called Wealth Psychology. Yeah, I I think it's a fascinating conversation because I think the word wealthy has been co-opted to mean financially wealthy. And then I think people feel uncomfortable um, self-labeling themselves because it's um, it sounds snobby or it sounds bragging. You know, like I, most people wouldn't walk around saying, you know, um, I'm beautiful or I'm exceedingly intelligent. So it, it almost, you know, it has – but if, if you were to say to someone – um, would you like a wealth of knowledge? You know, if, if, if this was a show that would get, you know, was for people who were wealthy in knowledge, you know, probably nobody would object to that term. I, again, I think there's this sense of, I, I love the question you pose, is what is that fine line between the American dream of being successful and then where does it turn to that shift where people are vilified, that, you know, they're wealthy. And then there's all these assumptions that get made about the wealthy, that, you know, they're not doing their fair share to contribute to America. You know, they aren't um, giving back. Uh, they're just wanting more for themselves. So, you know, how how can we – and those definitions aren't necessarily helpful because I think then what what I see when I'm working with clients in particular is they get so caught in sort of a um, a matrix loop of worrying about how they're perceived as opposed to getting into action around what they care about most and the ways that they want to make a difference and using whatever resources they have in order to help, you know, bring their goals to fruition. So, you know, that, even though it might be fun, there was, um, our colleagues were actually interviewed on a, um, on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. And they were just 
lambasted. You know, they were made fun of. In fact, Emily and I were asked to do it, and we uh, politely declined because we really we don't want to set up what we do and our work and our clients to be laughed at. Um, and I thought, you know, it was really, although it was, might have been funny, it was a missed opportunity to really help people move forward in a positive way. And, and I'm so grateful for what you're doing, Gail Sylvia, because I think it's really shifting that and it's giving people a completely different forum to have a completely different conversation. What's your own experience, uh, Jamie, when it comes to wealth, contentment, and following your passion? It's a great question. Well, you know, just in terms of the financial piece, I come from a family business that my father began, and then um, my husband was a part of for a while, my sister and my brother are now part of. Um, so, you know, I'm an inheritor. Um, and one of the, we had all these sort of idioms growing up. One of the great idioms that I loved growing up was really that what we have to give our children, my parents said, was roots and wings. So mm. roots are the values and wings are then to fly. Um, and um, that they hoped that the money was that we could pursue our dreams and not be attached to, um, you know, needing to work at a job just to produce a salary, but really work at professions that we loved and were stimulating and that we felt made a difference. So that was a tremendous, I think that might be one of the biggest gifts that I got from my parents. Um, and so that's why I got into this field, as we talked about, you know, on the first part of this call. Um, and, and I married somebody who was very um, passionate and had a dream really to bring peace, you know, to help to be part of bringing peace to this region. To the, I'm in Israel. Um, and um, it was interesting because when I worked at Wells Fargo, that's what I did day in and day out with clients is I helped them really um, work towards living their most fulfilled life and to use the financial resources towards that and still what I'm doing. But I started to feel a little bit like I wasn't walking my talk because here I had this husband who I'd been married to for about 17 years who'd always wanted to live in Israel and pursue his dreams. And I kept saying, no, 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 no. I'm not moving to Israel. Um, you know, we don't have any family there. It was his passion. And then I realized, you know, I'm not being authentic. If my passion is really helping people to use their gifts um, for good, then I can't practice that nine to five and, you know, teach or as my kids might say, preach that to my children and then not really walk the talk. So, um, you know, after struggling with that, I, I came back and said to my husband, you know, um, I, I want to give this dream of yours an opportunity to really develop and grow. Um, so, it, you know, it, it's interesting. Being, being in Israel really comes out of my passion, and it's really um, being authentic and letting my husband develop his passion. What was the sacrifice well, um, you know, it's interesting. It, 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 I guess the sacrifice is a moving target because if you had asked me, we moved three years ago, um, I might have felt differently. Um, the, the sacrifices, you know, and again, I, I hesitate to use that word because I, I would say trade-offs would 
be a better word. Um, the trade-offs are that, um, you know, we left our family in the States, a family on both my husband's side and my side that I'm, you know, we're extremely close with. So, um, you know, now we're 10 hours away by plane, depending, you know, most of my family's in California, so that's even like 15 hours and different time zones. So difficult, you know, we lived 45 minutes away from my parents and my sister. So, you know, we saw them at least once a week. Um, so that was a huge trade-off. Um, also, um, I my business really um, revolves around the spoken word and listening what's beneath the words. So um, that was a huge trade-off for me because I didn't speak Hebrew. And I still, as my children will tell you, um, you know, they don't think I speak it very well at all. So, you know to move and, and to be an immigrant, to move from, you know, a place where I was doing very well um, in my career and was settled um, and to move somewhere where I didn't speak the language and I don't know, you know, it's a different culture in many, many ways. Um, and it's been a huge, I, again, I, I don't call it sacrifices, I call it trade-offs because all of those things have helped me grow and develop. Um, and most importantly, you know, one of the things um, I think that families of wealth face, particularly with their children, my children will be now third generation, is how could we let them grow up and have a sense of struggle? You know, my father, who made the money, always speaks about that he was hungry and that he really, he, when he graduated from college, he wanted to be an actor, but that was not at all a possibility for him. Um, and he just needed to make a living, but it also became engaging because he had a goal. And that, you know, financially, we didn't have that same hunger. So um, one of the things that my husband and I decided was that this was an opportunity to allow our children to struggle. They really got plopped into a new environment. My daughter, when she was eight, my son, when he was 11, not speaking any, you know, really anything and going to school in a completely different language. And to see that they could um, be resilient, that they could depend on themselves, that they could um, struggle and make it through. And, and they're really thriving now. And, um, you know, if they were standing here, they might not tell you it was a gift. And yet I know that it was a tremendous gift to them. Um, and, you know, I think whenever they face difficulties in the future, they'll have they're sort of tried and true now. They know that they can depend on themselves and that they can get through difficult obstacles. Um, so I, I think that was a tremendous gift to them and a huge trade-off. Is there, when I think of the word, I think this goes back to the earlier part of the discussion, Jamie, around the word wealth. And the word sacrifice um, is one of those words that has come in, you know, contemporary times not to be given the value and in the proper place that it used to have in generations ago. And for me being Christian, I associate that word sacrifice with Israel and I viewed it as a a gift that was consciously made in order to benefit others. And it seems like in our, um, you know, this day and age, 
you know, people don't want to use the word sacrifice because it's viewed as giving away something that you really didn't want to, you know, so we use other words. But what I hear you saying around walking your talk and following your passion was that your love was so deep for your husband and that in order for you to remain true to your own personal values and what you live out, how you live out your life, is that you wanted to give your children and your husband a gift from you that would benefit them and also nurture you at the same time. So that gift was, I'm going to leave this part of who I am and where I am at in my career and offer that up in order to fulfill a bigger purpose or another purpose. And we're going to do it by leaving our, you know, being so close to our family and going to Israel in order to, you know, be of service to others, in order to help your husband um, experience his passions and his, you know, expand his life. And at the same time, um, I'm, I would guess, um, I look forward to meeting him because my husband, um, you know, we've he is, we've shared these moments where we have made conscious gifts that are forms of sacrifices on behalf of the ones we love. And we would not take it back because it's a gift and it's a conscious choice and and it seems to have added value when you know those moments when you're kind of walking in the park alone or you're in the bathtub and the lights are off and you're crying and you're thinking like you know gee I'm getting ready to give up all of this for this other experience but then at some point you know, I've always come to a moment where I'm saying, you know what, I want to do this because it's a gift. And, you know, I, I, am I making sense? I, I was up very late last night. <laughs> you, you are making sense. It's, it's so great because you always go right to the heart of the matter. I, I have the wonderful, um, I've had the wonderful ability to be coached. Uh, be mentored actually by Jay Hughes, who um, is a wonderful um, past um, family estate attorney, but really has looked at this issue of wealth and um, passing it down through the generations. And he has uh, mentored me professionally, but it's often gone into the personal as well. And he really helped me play with the wording for myself. I think the reaction for me with sacrifice is there's a sense of that you're giving something up and that the other person, um, you know, there's a weightiness that they're sort of responsible. You know, if I make the sacrifice for my husband, then he has to hold that versus a gift is something that I am responsible for. I consciously chose to give it to my husband. Yes. It came out of the sense of my passion, which is that I feel deeply that the way that we live our best life is to have things that we're passionate about, to be um, working towards something greater than ourselves, um, to have a calling. 
And so I couldn't deny my husband's calling if my calling is to help people reach their calling. So that that was the piece where I had to walk my talk. If that's really what my calling is, then I have to, you know, of course I want to give that to my husband. In fact, one of the the exercises we do with clients is sort of what would you want your legacy to be if someone was eulogizing you? Um, and I kept thinking, you know, or what would you say on your on your deathbed that you were sad you didn't get to do? And I kept having this image that my husband's on his deathbed saying, if I only got to live in Israel, and that I was what stood in the way. So the gift then became going to Israel. It would have been a sacrifice. What made it a gift was that I took responsibility for for giving the gift and saying, I will go to Israel and figure out how to still have my calling. It wasn't that I was giving up on my dreams to accommodate his dreams. Right. It was that I was looking for a way that we could incorporate both of our dreams. Um, and I think that's where the real gift came out. And And then also there were all these unexpected things that happened by coming here that I never anticipated. You know, the sense of community that I found here, the sense that I have friends here that would do anything, you know, there's such a, a much stronger sense of community, I feel, um, and less isolation. The ability for my kids, we lived in Oakland, um, so the ability for my kids now to be very independent, to ride public transportation, to walk home at night, things that in a million years they couldn't have done at, you know, they're now um, 11 and 14 in Oakland, um, and to have this ability to struggle and know that they can depend on themselves. Those were all, you know, so that, the language of gifting for me works much better. I think if my husband, you know, when he's listening to this, has heard me say, oh, I, it was a sacrifice for him then it sounded like I did give something up as opposed to it was a gift that it was important for me to give to him, right. to give to my children, and then to realize that through the gift, I also received so much, on, you know, that I didn't anticipate receiving. Uh, that, to me, has been the biggest surprise and delight. So it's a gift. The, it's a um, gift. And again, the, the wording, um, sacrifice, um, you know, I see there, and I think you probably, I don't know if you see it or not yet, but there is a, a email that came in from Honolulu, and the listener is asking, Dr. Jamie, how do I distinguish being selfish and losing parts of myself and my purpose versus a love gift and sincerity of giving no matter the outcome? Oh, what a beautiful question. Um, I, I think that, again, that's one of those things where there's that fine line, just like talking about, well, um, it's really about understanding what is your core and what are those core values that you can't really move from. I almost got caught in my own sort of catch-22, 22, yeah, um, because what I said is my core value is to help people live their most passionate life. But I wasn't I wasn't being authentic in it. I wasn't helping my husband do that because it was going to be difficult for me. So, you know, in that way, 
not only wasn't I being a good partner, but I really wasn't being true to myself. So sometimes we need to look a little bit outside of the box of how can you live your values um, and be true to them. You know, I, I wouldn't even call it selfish. I would call it being true to true to those things and incorporate in um, the values and the priorities of the people most important to us in our lives. And sometimes it's a conversation. You know, I said to my husband, I want to give you this gift. I'm not sure that I can. I'm willing to go for a year and try really, really hard. I'm not sure if I can do it. Um, And so I didn't have to hold that or be strong or be tough. You know, I said to him, can you work with me on it? Can we, you know, so I, I think it's about having that open conversation and um, looking for those unique solutions that can be both and. If you feel like, you know, you're being selfish, then it's a sense of, of feeling like you don't deserve to have your values. Um, so, you know, that often comes from past messages we get from family around what selfish means. Mm. How do you, uh, you mentioned this allowing your children, you know, to struggle and, you know, to, in order to have roots and wings and develop their own sense of values and then be able to fly, uh, you know, being able to grow up having a sense of struggle. How does that word struggle um, become how do you utilize that as a healthy, you know, in a healthy word, you know, versus abuse? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's again, it, you know, playing with words. People think you gave your gift, you gave your children a gift to struggle. Um, I think that often, and we see this with with parents with wealth all the time. They think that the gift is to give their kids everything that they want. Right. Um, and that, you know, instantly fulfill every need that they have. And, um, you know, my personal and expert opinion is that's a mistake. That part of what we need to each develop as humans is the ability to be able to depend on ourselves, to see that we can um, make the things that we want or need happen in our own lives. So, you know, if my kids always have it fairly easy, um, and they think that, you know, everybody grows up when they're 16, everybody gets a car, you know, that's what they see. They don't have an opportunity to test their own metal um, and to see what their sense of self-worth is. So this struggle was, you know, my my daughter, even at eight, and she was so articulate, she'd come home from school and she'd say, you know, Ima, that's Hebrew for mom, she said, mm-hmm. you don't know what it's like sitting in school. This is what I hear for eight hours a day. Rom, 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 rom. Because she didn't understand a word of it, you know. And I can only imagine what that would be like. And as she stuck it out and the words stopped just being gibberish, started to make sense, she saw that she could stay with it and learn it and you know, really um, master it. She didn't speak a word for a year and a half of Hebrew. She refused. Um, so, you know, that notion, to to get that into your body in a physical sense of knowing, when push comes to shove, I can do it. 
It might be hard. It might take a long time. I might get scared, and I can do it. That, that to me, is where the ability to struggle and then to know your own worth really seems like a gift. What kind of words of advice were you and your husband giving her during that struggle? It was a tough struggle. She was really, really, you know, she was really angry with us. Our son really wanted to come, and he was happy, but she was angry, and especially we were taking her away from her grandmother. That was particularly difficult and remains to be difficult. We talked a lot about, again, I I think this conversation, it's interesting. We didn't intend it to, but it's really looking at what's the meaning of words and being very careful about the words we choose. So, you know, when she said this was going to be awful and there was nothing to gain, we tried to use words like this is an opportunity, this is a new experience. This, you know, we, we would tell her to go to school and not worry about her grades, you know, one step at a time to go slowly to see what there is for a begin to be a beginner, what it is and to be okay with, you know, not having to know something right away. Um, I, I think they were tremendously difficult con- concepts for an eight-year-old and, I also think she really rallied around the challenge, um, you know, even though it was completely, you know, she, I think she could say she sacrificed because I, I went, you know, I was the one that said to my husband, let's go. No one came to her and said, you know, we discussed it with her, but nobody said, you know, she thought she should have 25% voting right in the family. And we said, it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, but she, we said to her, how do you want to take, this is what your life is right now. And sometimes life just happens. So how do you want to move forward? Do you want to move forward just being stuck and saying, I give up and I'll never, you know, I hate it and I'm crossing my arms and that's the end? Or do you want to try to make the best of it until you're older and you can make the choices you want? Um, and again, she rallied, um, you know, and she's thriving. She, you know, talks a mile a minute, has a ton of friends. Um, and, again, it, there's trade-offs. You know, it would be hard to say to her, which one would you pick if you had to make the choice? Um, but I think that there's a lot that she's gained. What about uh, I, I hearing some things that seem very important to us as adults in these lessons from a child? And that is, you know, it it takes all of us a different length of time for each of us to feel comfortable with our own voice and our own presence in an environment and being able to um, be allowed to struggle through that process and then, you know, experience that moment when we're suddenly speaking up or we're suddenly engaged where, you know, it took a while. Others might arrive at that place of engagement and finding their voice um, earlier than others. But your daughter, you said it took a year, you know, before she would speak a word of Hebrew. And did it just happen one day and you happen to be with her and it, you know, you notice that, hey, you're speaking Hebrew? Or did she wake up one morning, you know, at the breakfast table and say, 
you know, today I'm only going to start speaking in Hebrew. What was her, you know, what was that journey like for her that we can also learn lessons from? Well, it was very ironic because it happened to be when she, when I really first heard her start speaking Hebrew, um, there were two, there were two big events. One was that we were in a period of limbo at the beginning. Um, you know, I said to my husband, let's come for a year. That's, you know, let, and we'll move from there. Let's, let's have a year trial. And we quickly realized it was such a big transition that we weren't going to know anything of what real life would be like after a year. We would only know what huge transition would be like. So we quickly decided we'd stay for two years. So it was right around this year and a half point that we said we we are staying. You know, we didn't say we're staying forever. We said we're staying and, you know, when we make other choices. So I think up until then she was sort of hedging her bets. Like, how much do I really need to invest? Or, you know, am I going to be out of here pretty soon? So, so that was one piece. And, and and I think it talked a lot about her personality, too, in terms of, you know, um, she wants to know that something's serious before, you know, she really puts in the effort, which which I completely understand. And then the second piece was that it was actually right around the time my son got bar mitzvah and most of our family came. And uh, we had asked her if she wanted to have a part in the bar mitzvah, and she said, no, not really. But as soon as they got there, right before they came, she said, you know what, actually I do. And I said, okay, do you want to read something in English? And she said, no, no, I want to do something in Hebrew. So all of a sudden I think there was this sense of pride. And I noticed we did a whole weekend. Um, My husband is um, a partner in a summer camp. So my son's bar mitzvah, we had it at the summer camp, and it was a whole, like, weekend experience of being at summer camp for the kids. Yeah. Her. So um, I saw her with her cousins and with friends from the States. She was doing all the translating. And all of a sudden, she had this huge sense of pride that she knew two languages and that she knew what's going on and that she could be a leader in this sense. So it was really quite dramatic and then she took it on in an again in an ownership fashion where she felt very um proud that she was someone who was bilingual uh, and saw it as a unique thing and um really saw her own accomplishments in how far she'd come so it it, it was very interesting Jamie, this program, this episode is being brought to our listeners on Sylvia Global by the Weatherby Asset Management Group, a wealth management um, group, and we appreciate their support of the wealth psychology segment. Talk to our listeners about how wealth and finding our own place of leadership within or if for yourself, you know, your own you know, your own sense of leadership within your family and the management role of your wealth. It's a great question. Again, I think the the real wealth, you know, we're going back to playing with the word again about what does wealth in one's life mean. The real wealth and the what real way to lead a rich life, which is, you know, our tagline at Wealth Legacy Group, is might have financial 
you know, um, sustainability as a piece of it, but it's really focused on feeling fulfilled, feeling like you have a calling, feeling like you can be a leader and what calls to you most. So I think that's always the place um, where we work with people to start. And certainly when I, you know, um, got my Ph.D. in psychology, that really felt very meaningful for me when I was able to add the piece in about wealth because I saw that there was a vacuum where people were talking about everything but wealth in my office. Um, and that's always a clue to me about conversations that people don't feel comfortable to have and that I need to to make a space for. That really felt like a huge calling for me. Um, so that was a huge opportunity. And now I've been working um, within my family and within, you know, our shared family assets, financial assets, to see how can I bring those pieces of leadership to the family, you know, there was, there's always some pull, you know, to go into the family business. I have two siblings. They're both in the family business. My father's just about to retire and theoretically leave the business. We'll see how that goes. Uh, (laughs) But certainly take, um, yes, he's been saying that for a long time, but, you know, certainly take a, a less active role. So, you know, how could I contribute to the family? Um, and so being able to design that from my place of calling and my particular strengths, as opposed to feeling like, um, oh, I need to go into this business because, um, you know, my family needs me. I, I do still feel pulled to that. And yet that's not really where my passions lie. So I think there's, you know, we call it, or Jay Hughes really invented it, but uh, this idea of the inheritor's dilemma of, and he uses the um, symbol of the yin-yang, that inheritors are always co-stewarding dreams. They're stewarding the dream of the previous generation or generations while also developing their own dream and their own um, leadership role in independence. Um, and I think that that adds a certain level of complexity because it's not um, – as easy as just saying, you know, who do I want to be when I grow up? There are certain responsibilities and, um, you know, managing the the financial piece, managing a business takes time um, and takes expertise. So there's, there really is a both and role. And, and again, I think like uh, we spoke to the caller, um, it's a combination of being true to yourself and also seeing what are, you know, how can you move within the greater needs of um, the family and the people that are closest to you. You know, there's we do have another, um, we're having a little bit of trouble getting the callers in, but we do have another email. And I, before I read that to you, I want to go back to something that you were just describing about finding and identifying your own leadership role within the discussion of wealth. And also, you know, within your your business and within your family, I can't help but sense that your daughter is modeling your behavior, that she's learning by observing how you are leading and defining what works for you in your own life and in this new atmosphere after leaving home. Do you do you think that? There's a consciousness in your decision making 
that's that's being um that you're consciously aware that your daughter is also arriving at finding her own voice and her own leadership place like you described within the bar mitzvah experience by modeling you absolutely i i'm very conscious of that you know and as as parents um you know it's always funny Kelsey, to be um working with other people, you know, as an expert in helping them and then doing it in your own life. Right, Uh, right, right. It's a different level. And, you know, I I try to think about it very consciously. She and I have conversations about it. Um, She, you know, I have, she's very spicy. So she, she lets me know her feelings all the time. And she tells me, you know, oh, you should be really helping more. You know, what's going to happen if Grammy and Grandpa get sick and they need taken care of it? You know, so she has her opinions when we talk about this sort of dilemma of, you know, what's particularly um, as women, what are our responsibilities to family and what are our responsibilities to self? And how do we maneuver within that? Because she, I think where she really sees it is in the way that I um, stepped up in, in terms of this gift to my husband. Um, you know, because she saw that it wasn't something that I necessarily wanted to do on my own accord and yet felt very strongly and very much wanted to be a support and um, um, help him. So, you know, if I define that as a sacrifice or that I had to give up in order for him to have, I think that would have given her a certain model of what our expert expectations were as, as parents for girls versus um, – you know, this constant discussion out loud a little bit of how can I take care of myself and my own needs and my own um, passions and also work within being a member of the family and looking at what are the greater needs of the family. And, you know, when she said, well, what about me being unhappy? We tried to contextualize it, again, within being a member of a family. Um so I hope I hope that you know she'll look back and think that I provided a good model. Um, I'm sh- I'm certainly thinking consciously of of um, wanting to create it that way. You know that's the perfect um, segue into the question from Vancouver, and it the question is: Last week you spoke of inheriting wealth. How do I walk my own talk when our family history demonstrates no healthy examples? That is fabulous. Um, we, one of the tools that I use with almost every client that I work with is something called a genogram. And it is um, a family tree. It's sort of a psychological family tree, but it's really an opportunity to look at the stories that get passed down and the messages um, and to see where we want to continue forward because those stories and those messages um, endorse our values and where we want to say, okay, that's how it was done in the past, and that isn't necessarily who I am. This doesn't resonate with my core values, and so I want to develop a different kind of legacy for the future. We also do... Um, I do a lot of work with clients with something called appreciative inquiry. People can mm. go online and look about uh, on both of these things, genograms and 
appreciative inquiry. And the thought of appreciative inquiry is instead of looking at all the stories that haven't worked in the past, are there some instances of stories that have worked? Are there instances of stories of resilience or of strength or of um, giving back? Whatever the values of, you know, if, if this caller was in front of me that I would ask to, to her or him, um, where have those stories really um, come to life for you in your path? And how can you learn from those experiences and put them into play into the future? Um, and pass those stories along. So, you know, I think a lot of it is unpacking what we believe um, and looking for new possibilities. Where can listeners go to find that? Give us examples for the genograms. Again, you said they can go online. So that's genograms, G-E-N-O-G-R-A-M. Yes, and I'll tell you, one of my favorite books about genograms, I'm going to type on Amazon while I talk to you, is by Monica McGoldrick. Um, and she came out with a new, um, a new addition to the book. Um, it was called You Can Go Home Again. Now it is called The Genogram Journey, Reconnecting with Your Family. So she talks about exactly what this caller is talking about. How do you look at these past stories and use them as an opportunity to be able to reconnect or to rewrite how you want to move forward and the stories that you want people to move forward with? Um, and it's very fun because she will give the examples. And, and very often um, certain messages get passed down from generation to generation without us even realizing it. So she uses um, different famous people, and she's done their genograms. So she has the Kennedys, she has uh, Charlie Chaplin, all these fun, you know, well-known different presidents and the repeated patterns that, that happen. And then for appreciative inquiry, appreciative inquiry is great because it's all open source technology. It was developed out of, Case Western, if you go to Appreciative Inquiry Commons, so the website is appreciativeinquiry.case.edu. As in Case Western University? Yes. Is that what I said it was developed out of, or did I just give an entirely different school? Now that I'm okay. I might, have, we'll put, I might have given the wrong school, but it was developed at Case Western University in Ohio. Well, we will post this on the Sylvia Global website under the Wealth Psychology segment. You know, Jim, you and Emily have this wonderful gift that you always leave the question, the listeners with an evocative question and some other um, intentional purposes and tool, useful tools. Can you share those today? Sure. Um, I would say that the intentional, evocative question is, what are your core values? And mm. what in your life feels like it brings purpose and calling to you? And a great way to look and investigate that is to go to the Appreciative Inquiry uh, Commons and to to do it. It's very simple. You can do it with your by yourself. You can 
interview somebody else and do an appreciative inquiry of where have you felt. You can ask questions like, what is an instance in my life where I felt completely engaged and passionate about what I was doing? And then you tell the story, and then you look at the particular pieces. Well, what about that situation had me feel engaged? What were what were the key features? Was it working with other people? Was it the subject matter? Was it that I was doing something bigger than just for myself? And then you can use that information to think how you want to plug it in in the future to where your calling is. So if, if I know, and really what, what the research shows us around happiness is people feel most fulfilled when they're doing something they're passionate about, when they're engaged with other people and working as a community, not working independently or being isolated, when their purpose is bigger than themselves, so they're making a greater difference. Um, those are some of the key features. Um, and so... That's a great thing to leave this call for people to think about. And as always, people can email us, can write comments on Facebook, can feel feel, feel excuse me, feel free to call us um, with their questions, and you know we're happy to give more information and more individual attention as needed and desired. So thank you, Gail Sylvia. The, um, and the the tools again, the genogram, the psychology, the psychological family tree, you know, that you made reference to, and the appreciative inquiry. Uh, that information will be posted on Sylvia Global's website under the Wealth Psychology segment with um, Dr. Jamie and Emily. Any closing thoughts? Yeah, I would just say, you know, the genogram, what I find most powerful is to have somebody who's um, really an expert in um, working with genograms. To in, It's a way to interview. Um, often when I've worked with people, they know all the stories of their life, but it's a way to make connections between events and between stories in people's life that all of a sudden has people people looking at their life in a completely different way. Um, and so you can read about it, but I think that the power is really in um, working with someone on a genogram and having this new perspective of how these past messages continue to impact us and that we carry them unconsciously into our future. Thank you so much, Jamie. We're such It's such an honor to be able to ha- have you as a part of Sylvia Global. And we're looking forward to having Emily back. We miss you, Emily. And we appreciate both of you and the information. Again, Dr. Jamie Traeger-Muni, you can find her on sylviaglobal.com under the Wealth segment. You can also find her with the Wealth Legacy Group. Yes. Thank you, Sylvia. I feel like the honor is ours. We, We love having this platform, and it was a delight doing an interview with you today, so thank you. Oh, absolutely, our pleasure, and we thank the listeners for their questions and participating in the conversation. Talk to you later. Absolutely. Take care. Finally, a global program specifically for wealthy, philanthropic women who are humble, gracious leaders. Sylvia Glo-